Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nimity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy by Trustar. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. Whenever I hear someone talking about blockchain, I immediately get an itch. It seems to be a magic solution to a lot of problems that did not exist before. It's a buzzword. And of course, the blockchain-based cryptocurrency oftentimes seems more like a casino than a sensible investment. Let's just say that I'm not a big fan of the technology. However, every once in a while, you hear a blockchain application that still spikes an in interest. And today's guest has developed such an application. The use of blockchain in relation to online advertising to help people make some money in return for their data. Is this the future of online advertising? I don't know. But Eric Ryan, CEO of Imagine BC, certainly thinks it is part of it. Eric is a former HR consultant turned tech entrepreneur who is trying to build a digital community to allow people to monetize their personal information. And in this episode, you'll hear all about his drivers. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So, Eric, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. I highly anticipate this is going to be a wonderful conversation. <laughs> Are you ready for the unexpected question? Uh, it's unexpected, so how can I be ready for it? The first person who actually understands this <laughs> thank answer. Thank you. Thank you. What did you do last Tuesday? What did I do last Tuesday? Today's the 28th. That's today a week ago. Well, I can tell you every Tuesday morning for me starts off with a call to India where we review status of, of our, our, our upcoming launch. So that keeps my Tuesdays pretty dull. So there's no question that I, <laughs> that I was already at my desk at about 7 o'clock in the morning. I was right here at like 7 o'clock in the morning. That means I'm in work mode. So yeah, it was just a boring work day. Any other day would have been more interesting, but a Tuesday... I know what the day is. <laughs> well, this time next week, you'll be able to say, well, last week I was speaking with Paul and Kay. That's correct. So there we Paul, what was your Tuesday like? Well, last week, Tuesday, I was teaching a data protection training cor course in Bangkok, Thailand. Wow. I hate you sometimes. That's one of the other Red Cross courses. And how, how, is the, how is traveling from the Netherlands to Thailand? Was it a pain? That's a direct flight, so that's fairly easy. Oh, nice. And there were beautiful pictures. I'm so jealous. It's ridiculous. Yeah, Bangkok Bangkok was nice. And there were people there from all the countries in between Afghanistan and Australia and Fiji and the Maldives. Wow. That's bad. Well, last Tuesday, I was with my grandchildren. I took a week off and I went and spent a week with my grandchildren over in South Carolina and their That's ages fantastic. three, two, and one. So I am still recuperating from my vacation. <laughs> so yours, yours are very close to mine. Mine is, my, my oldest is a little older than three. The middle one is about a year and a half and the youngest is five months. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. Two boys and then the girl. I, I, but I will boys. say, ah, uh, there you go. Thank God for the third, for the third, the girl. Thank you. Thank you. Now I have someone I can actually relate to. I don't understand <laughs> little boys. They're crazy. <laughs> so my, my uh, daughter-in-law, uh, when, when, when she was announcing the sex of the second one, she let the older one do it. And the older one is a three-year-old. And he goes, a little sister. And my wife goes, yes. And my daughter goes, no, it's not. (laughs) And my wife goes. Well, they do have an older sister who is eight. We let her do the gender reveal for the third one because we already knew it was a girl. So, but we wanted her to be surprised. She had no clue what it meant. We brought out all this pink stuff and pink exploding and pink cake and pink confetti. And she's like, so a little brother? And we're like, no, a little sister. It's pink. She went, well, boys wear pink. There you go. I was like, I love my granddaughter. She's got the right mindset. Kind of like American girls. Kind of like American girls. When you go to their site, you have to choose if you're an adult or if you're a girl. Now, you might know other sites like Legos you go to, and they're doing this kind of age gating. It's not really age gating because it's not based on year, but you're selecting if you're a child or if you're an adult. On American Girls, it's are you an adult or are you a girl? Interesting. And that's wrong. My grandsons like baby dolls, too. (laughs) (laughs) That's just wrong. So with that, Eric, let's dive in and talk about your company, what you're doing, what motivated you. All that great stuff. And I'll let Paul kick off the conversation because, you know, I always Fantastic. So thank you very much for joining us today, Eric Ryan. You are the CEO of Imagine BC. And I don't believe that that is a company that a lot of people will have heard about before. So maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself, who you are and what the company is. Uh, Sure. Most people won't know who Imagine BC is. We're We're a three year old startup. Real quick, I, I got here to Imagine BC. I had spent nearly almost three decades in the what's called the HCM market, human capital management. We designed a boutique piece of software to handle the processing of HR, person payroll and benefits information. In in always researching new technologies, got enamored with blockchain technology. And once I came to the conclusion, I thought blockchain had game-changing properties. I said, how can, how can we use that technology in an HCM system first? <laughs> and interestingly enough, if you think about an HCM system, we touch every piece of private data somebody has. Name, contact mm-hmm. information, bank information, HIPAA, benefit compliant information, everything, everything about somebody. And from an HCM perspective, that means we as a company had a single point of failure in our design. One centralized database, if a bad actor gets in and steals that data, we're too small a company to survive that. We'd probably be gone the next day. Now, thankfully, for two and a half decades, we never had that issue, but it doesn't mean it's not there. So I said, well, blockchain technology can kind of solve that problem for us, can't it? It's a distributed network. Mm -hmm. So to beat that problem, we, we started working on a prototype that said, hey, let's push the data out to the individual and let them own it. Then when our application needed that kind of personal information, we would ask for their permission to use it. And down, down we went. 
We did that for about six months and then realized that we were really asking people get the idea that they needed to take back control of their personal data. Now, you have to put this in context of time now. This was three years ago before Cambridge Analytica. You know, it's it, enough to get people now to understand the importance of controlling their personal data. Three years ago, forget it. <laughs> you weren't going to do it. So he said, what would get somebody excited about the idea of them taking back control of their data? And we, we naturally came to the conclusion that, well, if I can make money for my data, I would, uh, might be interested in controlling my data. And that's the kernel of, that's the long <laughs> answer to your, that's Imagine BC. So we actually started a new company. We called it Imagine BC. And Imagine BC's goal in life is to first help individuals take back control of their data, but more importantly, receive fair equity for the use of that data. That sounds very interesting. So why the fascination with blockchain? <laughs> well, I got to be honest with you. When I first was introduced to blockchain, I guess because it's so, I'm so old, and as you get older, you get become more of a, a cynic in life. I thought it was the stupidest thing I ever heard about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, 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 I still consider myself young, and I still have that same feeling, now, to be now, honest. You have to differentiate <laughs> blockchain technology from crypto. One day, digital currencies will be the accepted form of currency. It's the natural progression of history of money, right? People used to walk around with gold coins and little mm -hmm. bags on their hips and they get killed, right? Then we, then we got these things called banks and fiat currencies. Inevitably, you'll have digital currency. It'll, it'll almost assuredly be controlled by governments because I don't see us getting rid of governments anytime soon. But blockchain technology itself When you stop thinking of it as solving all the world's problems, it does help solve certain problems really well. And those are, if I want to control data in a secure fashion, absolutely. Any application that is in that world should be considering blockchain technology. Anything that's dealing with supply chain and transparency of all parties in a supply chain should be considering using blockchain technology. If you're in those two worlds, you really should be thinking about it. And, and you can already see banks, because they move money, they're already starting to adopt their way, right? Not crypto, but they're starting to use blockchain as a secure mechanism for safety and protocols. Mm -hmm. So that's really, you know, so it was the right solution for us because what our promise is to, to our members is You and only you, our member, control your data. We don't even have, we don't have it. We couldn't sell it to a third party because we don't even have it. <laughs> only you have it. And the only way you can promise that, truly promise that, the only technology out there that can give you that true promise is blockchain technology, that distributed network, secure network. Fascinating. So when you talk about allowing people to make money of their data. That's a concept that's been, been going around for a while. There have been more initiatives where people have said, hey, why don't, we, why don't we create something where people indeed can benefit from, from their own data if it is used for advertising or whatever purposes you can think of. But so far, it has only been mainly the discussions and, and nothing really materialized. So you are now actually doing it. 
Can you can you say anything about how popular it already is? It, it, the, the concept is not popular. We we continue to be kind of at the forefront of it. And you, there are numerous companies. We speak with them all the time, and looking at the concept of personal data monetization differently than we do. And that's fine because our focus is on the concept of interaction with the user. If they watch an advertisement, if they complete a survey, if they're responding to a direct offer, then that offer got to them by a targeted nature because of the use of their personal data and also their time. So they should be compensated. That's our focus. There are other companies who are more in the data warehousing, collecting personal data and offering it to third parties for maybe government research, medical research, that type of use of personal data. Those warehouses then share the equity. They get paid by those third parties back to the people whose data was used. We think that's wonderful. We hope one day we'll be the user interface for many of those warehouses, Mm -hmm. but we're focused on the ease of use, right? Getting something in somebody's hand, making it easy to use, not requiring much time, but giving a maximum value for the time they spent. So that that's where our focus is. So how does it work? If I say I'm a, I'm an advertiser, I'm a, a company and I want to run ads via your platform. What do I do? What are the what are the steps to take? Sure. You you identify the you, know, you do the things you normally do when you run an ad, first of all, right? How much do you want to spend? What audience do you want to reach? Those are the key things. So in our in our product, you'd identify what your budget is. You would identify who your audience is. You'd go one step further, though, which is you'd identify how much you are willing to pay a person each time they watch that ad to completion. Now, that doesn't really happen in today's world. You just have a budget and ma- magically Google and Facebook chew up your whole budget. <laughs> and then you've got to figure out <laughs> if you got an ROI from that, right? Or you give all your money to Hulu and in the near future, you're going to give your money to Netflix. And they're going to run your ad and you have no idea if anybody even watched it. So we'll get back to that because we have benefits. But in general, you figure out you how, mu- how much total you want to spend. You figure out the audience and then figure out how, and then you tell us how much you want to spend per person, per view, completed view of that ad. We then set it up. Then you're, and then, sorry, and we should also say, how often do you want to see it? You, you want the person to see it. So you have different frequencies. You could show it once a day. You could show it every other day, that type of thing. So once we have those parameters set up and you've given us the actual assets, the ad, all the the other stuff that goes along with it, the ad is started up into our system. And then that target audience within our app will now see that that ad is available for to be watched. And if they watch it, the person will see how much they receive. So, and in our world, that distribution of money is controlled by a blockchain smart contract. So it's exactly the same for all users. And now it's not modifiable without a vote of the entire community. So if I'm going to use a dollar, not because anybody would spend a dollar for somebody to watch an ad, but it's easy to do the math, right? So if the company said, I'm willing to spend a dollar for somebody to watch my ad, when the person on the other end actually watches that ad to completion, they would receive 70 cents. They get 70% of the spend. We, Imagine BC, always just take a flat 10. So again, our terms never change. We don't negotiate better deals with people. It's always 10%, and we're not setting the price. So it's whatever the company was willing to spend on the on the ad. And then the remainder of the money is actually then shared with who brought the advertiser into our community and who brought the viewer into our community, who referred their in. 
because that's valuable intellectual property too. So you, they get a piece of the action as well. So that's the distribution. So a company would do, go through just getting their ad on and then that ad would be available. And as people are watching it, that they would be paying out and their budget would be going down. So that's very different. I've said two things there that are very different from the normal advertising world. Mm-hmm. First is we ensure your ad is watched to completion. We do that when by when your ad is running a little four-letter word, not a curse word, but a little four-word alert, scan, icon, type, but, you know, some four-character four word appears somewhere during that ad. Always different. And usually way towards the end, but always different. And you, at the end of that ad, have to enter that four characters to get paid. So if you take your eye off the ad, <laughs> so unlike who, when a new Hulu ad comes up and I go running for the refrigerator and I never watch that ad, but that company just got charged for me, like my trip to the refrigerator, we're sure the person has watched the ad or they missed that. They won't get paid. They'd have to watch it again, which the company wouldn't mind, right? So, so one is we ensure it. Two is that if your ad's not being watched, you're not spending money. Now, lots of big companies may not care about that, but I'll tell you what, if you take a company like I've run for the last 25 years or so, my little boutique HR company, we, from a revenue perspective, those eight, my HR companies, we are anywhere from, I don't know, $4 million a year to probably the biggest we were, were like $18 million a year. And if you ask me, did I ever run an ad? I'll tell you, no way. <laughs> no chance. The risk was too great. The costs, the upfront costs are so high for the ROI. But now, if I get to target my audience, right, and I only spend when I know my audience has watched, I'm going to probably be a lot more open to making that investment because I, I know it's hitting my audience. So our approach Good for big companies, but really, really good for SMEs. It allows them to take a step into the world of advertising communication without the historical risks of lack of ROI from the investment you put in running your ad. So on the other side of the of the table, the, the individuals say, I want to be part of this and I want to make money using Imagine BC. I assume the ads that you are providing are not the ones that I see on a regular website with advertising, but that I have to make a deliberate choice to go to your website or maybe an app to start watching your ads. That's absolutely correct. You've got, you've got to download our app. You've got to become a member of our community. Now that's free, but you've got to become a member of our community. You have to choose how much information about yourself you want to put in. If you don't put any in, then the opportunities to make money are going to be limited because they're not, the ads aren't going to, though the surveys are not going to find you, right? If you put data in, then you're, the more data you put about yourself, the more it goes up. Again, you're always anonymous and you're in control of that data. But if you don't put it in, can't find you. So you're, you're absolutely right. You have. So instead of going to my, my Instagram feed or my, my, my TikTok feed, I'm going to, to your feed, start watching the clips, the videos, the advertising. And instead of spending only time, I also get some remuneration for it. Correct. Correct. And interestingly enough, We've, we've been speaking about only really half of our business model. And, and the other half is related to the content providers also. So when you use the word feed, you may come to a feed in Imagine BC and there may be some content for you to watch, 
and purchase, and there's ads for you to watch and earn. And what we hope is that after you've earned money in our platform, you have one of three choices of what you could do with that money. You can use it to purchase content. So it's essentially a barter system. I really want to watch this. It costs a dollar a month to watch it. I can watch a couple ads. I'll earn the money. I don't have to go in my wallet. The second is, I don't need the money. There's no content, but there's a charity I'd really like to receive. So now I'm watching ads to help a charity. So we have enough number of national charities that we're in partner with. Organizations like National Network, Dead Domestic Violence, Toys for Tots, Hope for Haiti. We have about 10 national ones. And then a user could also say, look, I have very one very specific I want to. And then we vet it. If it's a legitimate nonprofit, we add it to our system. And now they could start donating their money to the charity of their choice. So that's the second thing. And the third way you can use it, you can take the money down into the physical world and spend it on goods and services like, you know, the electric bill and maybe some food. And with the way it's going through this country, I really think there are probably a lot of people around the world right now who would like to have a few extra bucks in their pocket from the ads they consume rather than Google and Facebook and all the other media outlets having that money. Yeah, I don't believe that inflation is unique to the U.S. at the moment. Correct. It's worldwide. <laughs> so this is, for now, is this strictly a U.S. thing? No, it's it's bad. What we found <laughs> was that the United States, God bless our country, I guess, is a stupidly wealthy country. So. Up until just recently, when now everybody understands the, the hit of inflation, but up before this, dude, you know, inflation has only hit the news within the last three, four months or so. We're just too wealthy, right? Nobody even cares. Oh, it's an extra two bucks. So what? <laughs> you, you don't get, I mean, you can't get an American excited about that. We, we were lucky to have a network of individuals who understood what we were doing. And in fact, they introduced us to first a group in South Africa and then a group in Nigeria. And let me tell you something. Our value proposition resonates over there really well. <laughs> so the first group, they went to the largest retailer in South Africa and said, would you be interested in a situation where your customers, and this, I should say, this retailer, they sell these mobile devices. And more importantly, they make commissions on the minutes they sell on these mobile devices. So they, our, our partner went over to the retailer and said, would you be interested in a model where your customers can watch ads and the money they earn, some of that would be used to automatically buy more airtime from you? And the retailer said, sign us up. <laughs> so, I mean, I can't tell you how many companies I've spoken to in the United States. That they're like, how many people do you have on the thing? It's always the same stuff, right? Are you, they're basically saying, are you Facebook yet? South Africa, sign us up because the retailer understood that their demographic, there are very, there are a lot of very poor people over there who run out of money pretty quick in a month and just can't buy more time from them. Now they'll be able to buy more time simply by use of their personal data and spending a couple of minutes a day of their personal time to earn more time to get more time on their phone to watch more TikTok. But that means more commissions for that cell phone carrier. I mean, for that, for the retailer. So they signed up in a minute because it was really easy. Nigeria, same idea. It's just, it's a different world where they understand the value of our message 
so much clearer than they do in the United States. So we're, we're literally just today, this morning, got the approval to send the, our app into the store for approval with Apple and Google. So we'll be launching in South Africa within the next, hopefully, week or so. And then Nigeria will probably be launching towards the end of the summer. And our hopes are that the proof of concept that what we should be able to prove over there will make it much easier to get companies back here in the States to understand the real value of this for themselves, but but for their customer, right? This is good for their customer. This is a loyalty program that actually makes you money. That's novel. So how are you dealing with data protection and privacy laws around the world? Well, you know, if you look at what we do, and let's say compare us to GDPR, which is the most, you know, it's the oldest now. It's not that old, but it's it's the most mature. We're 100% compliant with GDPR. I mean, because we don't use our clients' data for anything. And I'll go one step further. We don't even have it. And, and I'll, the, the funny story I like to use to, to give you a sense that we don't even have our members' data is part of our app, we, we have some fun stuff. And one of it is a trivia game. And everybody who plays the trivia game is eligible for to win $5,000 US. And each time you play, you, you, you earn another chance to win. And there's a drawing every six months. And somebody wins the $6,000. Well, our first, I mean, $5,000. So our first drawing was last December. And we drew the persons in our world, the only thing we know about them, their, their referral code. <laughs> and then we sent a message into the app going, congratulations, you just won five grand. And then we watched. <laughs> and the person wasn't logging in. And we didn't see them take their $5,000. And we can't communicate with them. We can't text them. <laughs> we can't email them. We can't call them because we don't even know who they are. That's how secure their data is away from the nearest person, the company they're dealing with, let alone us using it for nefarious purposes. So we're, we're more compliant than most of the rules because we simply don't own it. We, the, our, our members are the only ones who own their data. So who would run the blockchain then? We run the blockchain, right? But when you register, your blockchain wallet is created and your 12-word password is sent to you. We don't have it. I mean, we've had people who contact us and says we lost our 12-word password and we can't remember our blockchain key. And we're like, oops. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, it's just your personal data. So we can clone your account and you can come back in and they just have to re-enter your personal data. You don't lose any of your money, but you'd have to create a new cloned account because we don't have your key. We can't get it to your wallet. We can't reproduce it for you. You have to re-enter it. Now, that is an interesting little thing. And that's <laughs> trying to keep that frictionless and, and make it simple. That it's taken us many iterations to get that to where, you know, easier. But blockchain is always going to be a little bit more complex because with a higher level of security comes more stuff you got to deal with. So one of the issues that I've been concerned about when it comes to blockchain is, for example, that everything is fixed on the blockchain where when it comes to data protection rights under the GDPR, but also on under many other laws, there should be the possibility to edit your data or to remove your data if you no longer want to use it. And that with a blockchain 
in principle is not possible because the data will be there forever. It will be it will be locked there. There might be an update in the in in the blockchain saying this user is no longer active or this user this user data has been changed. They are no longer using this bank account, but that bank account. But the old information would still be somewhere. True, but who can see it without your key? Who can see it? Yeah, you know, it's. I'm trying to think, if you think of real world, right? If I have something here, you know, if I have a bank account here in my house and I change my bank and I still have the paper in my house of my old bank account, it's still here. I'm using the new one, but anybody breaks into my house or anybody walks through my house or anybody I give a check to can see that data. But if your data is only on the blockchain, even if it's there historically, unless you grant access to it, nobody can see it. Unless it's a 51% attack and we won't bother, you know, it's a possibility, not going to worry about it, <laughs> but short of a 51% attack, who's going to see it if you haven't given access to it? I'm sorry. So it's a just 51 a 51% hist- attack. I'm not familiar with that term. And I think many of our listeners also won't oh. be. Oh, the, the susceptibility of a blockchain is, is that when you started one, because of the distributed nature, the data, you have control over the data and it can't be hacked because of the cryptographic nature. However, if somebody were able to get control of 51% of the nodes on that distributed network, then they could. <laughs> so if you think of Bitcoin, right? You're not, you, there's millions and millions and millions and millions of nodes right now operating the blockchain behind Bitcoin. If North Korea were ever able to attack that distributed network and somehow gain control of 51% of those nodes, they'd be able to steal all the Bitcoin money, <laughs> all the Bitcoins. Now, it just hasn't happened because it's, you know, it's almost impossible to do. Then you get into the classic argument. Oh, quantum computing will give you the computing power to do a 51% attack. But that, of course, is assuming that the blockchain technology won't keep up with quantum computing and make the cryptographic nature of cracking the keys harder. <laughs> so again, it's that that's not worth going into, but that's what a 51% attack is. If you could somehow gain control of 51% of the nodes on any blockchain network, you control the network. Okay. I was not I, this is this is a a new part of the the blockchain world for me, but it's always good to 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 keep learning. So so when you read stories about money being stolen from different cryptocurrencies, I always look at those and they're stealing the money from the exchanges. They're not stealing it from the network itself. Mm-hmm. It would take a 51% attack to steal it from the network. But I own a little bit of Bitcoin and I bought it through Coinbase. I didn't bother to take the next step and move that Bitcoin down to a secure wallet off of Coinbase. So my Bitcoin sits at Coinbase. Now, Coinbase could be hacked and I could lose my money that way, not from the network. If I had taken that extra step, it'd be totally secure. It's just, for me, it wasn't worth the book. It wasn't enough money to worry about it. But if you've got a lot of money on it, you shouldn't have it sitting there in Coinbase. You should have taken it down to a crypto wallet. And, that, and therefore, you know, as long as you have your own crypto wallet, then the next thing is you lose that wallet and you've lost all your money, right? There's the great story of that guy in Ireland who whose wife threw his wallet mm-hmm. away with, with a desk and he's still trying to get like, you know, $75 million out of a trash heap. 
So (laughs) there's always good stories one way or the other. But going back to personal data, unless somebody got 50 control, 51% of our nodes, they're not going to get your data. And so as long as you have your key, you're the only one that has control of it. Lose your key, you've lost their own data, but it's your data so you can recreate it. Okay. So I got a couple of questions that are going to stem from all of these. Sure. I've been sitting here thinking and listening. Forgive me. Okay. So if they're the only person that controls their data, then I noticed in the FAQs or the information available on your website that you have information on there about aggregating their data and different things like that. So if you don't have access to their data that's within their their account, what data are you controlling? Not non-identifying data, right? So if you were to log on, we have a quick general pro what we call a general profile survey. And that's a survey that was designed for us by Ipsos, the large marketing firm. And that survey, you know, based on the answers there, you're going to give a third party most of the data they're going to need to do initial targeting to get something to you. So there might be a question like, do you own a home? Okay. You answer yes or no, <laughs> right? If, if, if our database got hacked, you'd see an AAO referral code with a person who owned a home, but there's no way they would know that that was K. Okay. So, so you don't associate it with the login information or any of the payment information. Correct. Anything that would allow anybody to find that you, the needle in our haystack, you control. Anything that doesn't and that, that, that we use to you know aggregate and help find opportunities for you, that does sit in non-secure because, again, it's worthless to somebody. If a hacker came in, what gives that data? There's no identifying nature behind it. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> oh, you know, I have a database that says I have 40,000 redheads. <laughs> yeah, so what? <laughs> Doesn't matter. So we do bifurcate it. Okay. And then with the individual rights, and I think Paul touched on this a little bit earlier. So then with the individual rights, if somebody was to request access to their data or change to their data or to delete their data, you really have no ability to do that because one, it's encrypted from you and two, it's in blockchain. Right. Could do it for, we could. If, if the government came in and subpoenaed us, we give them everything we have, which would be useless to a government. <laughs> sure, take it. <laughs> Can't help you. And so if you work with companies in other countries, not in the U.S., but if you work with companies in other countries that require safeguards or certain contracts for data transfer, how are they receptive to the explanation of whether or not it's needed? It- we, we, we've had you know, we've had our we've had attorneys review this in the two nations where we're most for ahead of South Africa Nigeria okay and today the opinion we got back from the attorneys well we we're, we remain compliant within the guidelines that are in place in those jurisdictions so clearly we have to look at that if a, you know and we're going to simply avoid any country China Russia. That that <laughs> that will be acceptable. And I'm right. five. We're just never going to be there. Period. So countries that understand the the private an individual's privacy will we'll play nicely in those countries. Countries that don't, where we we have no interest in doing business in those countries. Okay, and and I apologize if you missed this right before if I missed this right before I logged on. 
But I understand that you discovered blockchain, you created the company, but where did the motivation come from? And I'm really curious, and you may or may not be bluntly honest, but was it from the I see a financial opportunity for cutting edge technology in a use? Or was it truly, I really believe in people's privacy and I want to be able to offer them something. I don't care if I make money. It, it's actually, a, uh, it was two things that collided at the exact same time I was learning about blockchain technology. The first was, is that my, unfortunately, my wife is the avenue of the me venting about how horrible the world we, uh, we live in right now. <laughs> she gets it for me. I don't go on to social media and vent. She gets it all for me. So I had all this pent up frustration and fear about the direction our, our country, United States, is setting in and the world in general is setting in. Well, privacy just took a big hit in our country. So we'll move on from that one. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> Simultaneous to that was the birth of my first grandchild. And now it became even more serious to me because I'm 61 years old. So I'm in the back third of my life, hopefully. Yeah, who really cares? <laughs> but my grandchild, when I look at the, his future, that really scared me. And I decided, yeah. look, I can either do something about it or I could just keep sitting here bitching. And I decided to do something about it. And I got my board of directors to allow me to go down this avenue. We're self, completely self-funded to date. We've, just, we've been taking the profits from the HR company and investing it into this data privacy media company called Imagine BC. So it was really that. And an extension of this concept of the world. So I, I tell people, you can look at the world one of two ways. You, you're either a Star Wars person or you're a Star Trek person. Star Trek people think, I'm neither. <laughs> and I'm both, so. <laughs> right. So Star Trek people, forgetting the actual, but Star Trek has a very rosy view of the future. Everything works now. It's the Federation. We all get along together. Technology is wonderful. Star Wars, not so much. No. We don't get along. The empires crush us, right? They use technology to kill us. Well, I'm a Star Wars guy. And what that means is I look at the inevitability of AI, ML-driven technology, robotic technology, as being catastrophic. In 1980, I'm going way back when I'm an old guy. So I was, you know, I was almost graduating college in 1980. So it was, I, was, I, was still, I was pretty much grown up, not fully, but getting close to being grown up. In 1980, General Motors was the largest company in the world. Huge car company. Their revenue per employee was roughly about $250,000, which is still very healthy. That's why they were a big, profitable company in 1980. Facebook who by no means is the largest company in the world, their revenue per employee is $25 million. Now, that's, let that that's enough to suck the air out of the world. <laughs> let that sink in. So anybody, <laughs> all you, those Star Trek people out there who think technology is going to solve the job problem that is going to the displacement that's going to come from robots, you're kidding yourselves. So... What happens when you have massive unemployment? Well, I'm a history major. You usually end up with people in the streets with pitchforks. It doesn't end well. Massive unemployment is a bad catalyst to very bad things. So we better, and we can't rely on our government here, 
we better figure out a way for people to start earning money when they don't have a full-time job. Well, I was looking at that saying, well, there's a pretty huge pot of money out there. And that's the money being made from our data. And rather than universal basic income, which is a Star Trek concept, (laughs) right? Because if there's nobody working, who's paying the taxes to be able to pay the UBI? But if you add a D to it and say universal basic data income, if we take all that money and give it back to the people who share it, okay, it's not going to completely replace a salary, but it's not insignificant either, right? You know, you know Jaron Lanier says that fully, you know, imagine BC can't make all the money for you from the data, but if you get all these other companies out there who are working in similar lines and you get your data to totally work for you, Jaron Lanier, you know, the well-known futurist, says it's probably somewhere between fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year. Well, that's not bad. <laughs> that's a start. That's a start. That, that's more than UBI is. It's a lot of money. So do you think that it's going to be able to succeed with anything less than a law that addresses the marketers? I think it's, I think it's, in it. I think the, the law will follow the success, to be honest. So you're revolutionary, not tilting at windmills. Right. I don't think so. I would say I was here in the United States, I'm still tilting at windmills. I am very optimistic because we have such a value prop in Africa that will choose the concept. You know, be able to prove the concept. Then, pretty confident that once we can show the big companies back here in the states the value of the model, we can get a big company to sign on, just like we did there, and, and you know, and, and help us get this out to the masses. And once you, once an advertiser says, sees that you have X million of eyeballs, they're going to give you money to advertise. They're going to go wherever the eyeballs are. Now, where's an app? You know, if you have to ask an advertiser. Do you want to advertise on Facebook? No, they're a horrible company. But where else am I going to advertise? (laughs) Right? But if there is an option, (laughs) and if you can find a big company to help you get those eyeballs, you'll get the advertisers. So I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll be able to sell it back here in the States. Because we've already sold it over there, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a success over in Africa. That's a good note to try to bring us to an end, huh, Paul? Exactly. I was just going to say. So thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Serious Privacy. It's been an absolute pleasure, Eric, to have you this week. If you like the episodes, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app or application or on the favorite podcast platform. Find us on LinkedIn. You just look for Serious Privacy. Find us on Twitter. Look for at Podcast Privacy. K is Heart of Privacy. And I'm your old Paul B. Until next week. Bye. Bye, y'all. That was serious privacy. Hey, listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. 
protect your company and data with TrustArch's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArch's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>